Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 16 of The Essential X-Lapsed. Uh, the Essentials are back and uh, we're back with our flagship book here. This is X-Men number 11, had a May 1965 cover date. Story is called The Triumph of Magneto. Written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Chick Stone, letters Artie Simek. Colors, well, no one credited, but in the case of this issue, they might prefer it that way because, oof, this is, this is not a pretty issue. Uh, cover price, 12 cents. Now, we don't usually discuss the cover all that often on the show. Covers are covers, right? Some are iconic, some are just kind of there. This one I feel like we need to mention because, well, uh, hmm, how do you how do you put this kindly here? Uh, it uh, it ain't got no alibi. Um, it's ugly. Ugly. It's it's not not a good looking cover. It almost looks like Kirby had like a pre drawn background of a city street, like ready to go for any book, and then they place some awkward X Men color forms on top of it. Like it is. It, it just looks very, very off. Now, we're going to meet the character, uh, the Stranger, here in this issue. And uh, on the cover, the Stranger is just kind of there. Like, <laughs> he's just placed on this street scene. Um, now, Beast, he's there. He looks high as a kite. Kind of like he might have just finished licking some stamps at the Coffee of Go-Go. It's a brutally ugly cover. Um... And, you know, the art all throughout this issue is just a bit off. Um, backgrounds are even more sparse than normal. And it's uh, just not going to be a very pleasant book to look at. Uh, hopefully the story will make up for that. So uh, let's hop on in. Now we open with the X-Men reporting to Professors X and S as the former had sent out an emergency alarm. Now Warren, he asks, what's up? To which Scott tells him to shut up. Okay. Uh, Xavier uses his uh, radar image beam in order to reveal that there's a brand new presence headed their way. One more powerful than any they'd ever seen before. Now, since this is the X-Men, everybody assumes that this new being is a mutant. Also, since this is the X-Men, they worry about racing to recruit this hitherto undiscovered mutant before Magneto can. Uh, the radar imager begins to take shape, and it's, an, it's a humanoid form, but with no detail. Then it explodes and vanishes. Now Xavier is just beside himself, gobsmacked, that this newbie is so powerful that it could shatter his vaunted image beam that uh, we'd never heard of until right this very second. Now Beast calls for the crew to leap into action and goes to perform a backflip off the wall for some reason. Uh, unfortunately for him, that rascal Bobby Drake, who, if you'll recall, is only 16 years old, decides to freeze the entire wall, furniture and all, just to make his teammate slip and fall. Yeah, that rhymed a lot. Uh, Jean manages to catch Hank with her TK and uh, gently places him down. Now, speaking of Kid Cool, by the way, you'll all be quite relieved to learn that he's got his booties back. So uh, you all can quit complaining about it in the letters pages, eh? Now, Xavier dispatches the kids to track down this new threat or friend, and he stops just short of giving Bobby some demerits for his horseplay before we shift scenes. And we head over to a boarding house, uh, assumedly somewhere nearby. There, the ugliest man Jack Kirby has ever drawn stands before a mirror adjusting his tie. This is The Stranger. 
Now, he is joined by the old battle-axe who owns this house, and she tells him that uh, she's going to need a full week's scratch, which uh, sounds a little bit fetishy, but uh, she actually just means money here. Or, in her words, cabbage, jack, moolah, and dough. I mean, she's saying everything but money. The stranger thankfully knows exactly what she means, and so he reaches into his suit jacket and then uh, pr- produces a wad of cash that could probably choke Galactus. Now, we follow the stranger through the streets of New York City where, uh, well, he becomes tired of the foot traffic and decides to just walk on air. Now, the citizens of New York assume that this is just some sort of publicity stunt, despite the fact that, you know, they, they live in the same city as Thor, Spider-Man, Iron Man. You know, folks who uh, swoop through the sky all the friggin' time. Now, the stranger feels himself being drawn to a nearby building by some sort of attraction. And so, he walks right through the wall and winds up stood before Magneto and the Brotherhood. I mean, who else was it going to be, right? Now, just then, Angel flies over to a window washer to see if he'd seen anything strange. And dude's like, yeah, I have seen something strange. You. And Angel flies away. Cyclops, in his uh, Ben Grimm best, a trench coat and wide-brimmed hat, he listens in on two police officers chatting up the weird air-walking stranger. Now, the cops notice him, and they think he looks suspicious. And in fairness, he is in a trench coat and a wide-brimmed hat like a creep. They question him, and naturally, they want to see him without his ruby quartz shades. So they wrestle them off his face, resulting in Scott blasting the bejesus out of the ground, a fire hydrant, and one of the officer's guns, which he had drawn and ready to fire. So, uh, don't don't mess with these cops. The officers immediately realize that this uh, weirdo in a trench coat must be, quote, the mutant called Cyclops. And they suggest that he might be more dangerous than that nut bar they just saw walking on air. So, um, do we call, do we consider that fear and hate? Maybe? I don't know. Now, lucky for Cyclops, he's able to find his shades, and he gets alley-ooped to higher ground by the barefoot beast's bare feet. Look at me being a beat poet. Now, Hank and Scott then bounce from building to building before diving onto an ice cylinder, compliments of Kid Cool. Not sure why this bit is necessary, but at least it allows Bobby to get his stuff in in a more productive way than just icing up a wall at Xavier's. Now, Jean helps Scott out of the ice slide gimmick, which prompts him to call her, quote, good girl. Jean compares this to Richard Chamberlain saying, my darling. Now, Chamberlain uh, was apparently a teen idol back in the long ago, and uh, he's actually still alive, so happy 87th, Richard. Uh, So we know Jean's still got the hot pants for Slim, right? Now, usually, these thoughts are, like, immediately reciprocated on the page with a Cyclops thought balloon going gaga, but uh, not today. Now, Bobby makes himself even more useful by crafting a flight of ice steps to help the X-Men peep in on some second-story apartments. Uh, This flight of stairs, however, looks like it leads nowhere. So, oh, that Bobby. Back to the baddies. Now, the self-identified stranger, he's going to refer to himself as a stranger the entire issue. Now, he's been offered the opportunity to join Magneto, and he wonders why he would ever agree to this. And so Magneto wraps him up in some metal debris that uh, just so happened to be littering this room. Uh, The toad cheers on like a lunatic throughout. Then the stranger finds himself underwater. And then in a volcano. This is all thanks to some mastermind illusioning. The stranger hasn't the time nor patience for these parlor tricks. And so he explodes from his metallic bindings, sending debris right back at the Brotherhood. 
He then emits a beam that turns Mastermind into a stone statue. Old M.M. is so heavy that he crashes through the floor into the jewelry store below, and the proprietor of the place rushes out the door to call for help, and the X-Men hear that call and spring into action. Tell you what, if you're a, uh, you know, a crew of supervillains here, uh, is hiding out right above a jewelry store the best place to... Uh, I don't know. Now, as luck would have it, when Mastermind went crashing through the floor, it also caused a great big hole to form in the brick wall of the place. Somehow. Angel swoops right in. And we might assume that Iceman whipped up another flight of stairs, because inside the X-Men confront the Brotherhood, and the stranger just kind of stands there. Angel finds himself attacked by Quicksilver, but then Iceman absolutely unloads onto Pietro, freezing him solid. Wanda is quite displeased, and uh, pulls a reverse Pietro, claiming that uh, no one shall ever harm her brother. And so she hexes something. Uh, Kirby doesn't even bother to draw a background here. All we see is Bobby and Hank kind of tripping over. I mean, Wanda's hex power is basically just tossing a banana peel under someone's foot, right? So it works. Angel swoops in again. He's doing a lot of swooping today. He goes to punch Magneto, but he and the stranger are in a protective magnetic bubble. The stranger then mocks Magneto, saying that he has no use for a shield, and in fact he tires of this place completely and goes to take his leave via his cone of energy. He offers Magneto the opportunity to join him, and our bucket-headed baddie hops to it, and Toad follows as well. The cone of energy floats away, and none of the X-Men can even see it leave. It passes by Scott and Jean, who are running up a flight of stairs. Uh, Not the ice variety, either, so what was even the point of that? Um, Now, Scott rushes into the room where the brouhaha took place. Jean is fearful that something bad might happen to her beloved darling, but dares not vocalize it. Inside, Wanda is hex-dropping chunks of ceiling onto the beast, but... He, he catches them with his groovy tootsies and starts spinning the lot of it in the air. Cyclops then blasts the debris to bits with his cursed optic beams. Now, check this out. Genie takes this opportunity to rush toward Wanda, claiming that she's been looking to throw down with the pretender for ages now. Wanda tells Jean not to flatter herself, because there's nothing personal between them. All the witch wants to do is check in on the Pietro Popsicle to make sure he's okay. Cyclops uses his optic blast to... Melt Quicksilver free. Um, and he's no worse for wear either, just a little groggy is all. Now it's here that the Maximoffs agree that their time serving Magneto is over. Scott's relieved because he never thought these two belonged with the evil mutants. Angel then, well, you guessed it, he swoops in to inform the boss man that Magneto, Toad, and the stranger have vanished. Pietro wonders where this new mutant might have gotten off to, and Cyclops doesn't know. All he does know is that the professor said that this fellow was the most powerful mutant of all. He then officially offers the Maximoffs the opportunity to join the X-Men, and many a letter hack is waiting for their response with bated breath. And, well, they turn him down. Pietro says they've had enough conflict to last them a lifetime. Well, just wait until next episode, then. Cyclops makes another appeal and nearly gets Wanda to change her mind which causes Genie to go green with envy. Pietro cuts him off, though, claiming that, as far as he and his sister are concerned, he is the one giving orders now. Huh. And they leave. Now, Wanda says they might return someday. And, uh, well, someday, as far as we're concerned, is next episode. Scene shift. 
The stranger's cone of energy stops spinning in a wooded area. Magneto is impressed with this display of power and even considers this ugly stranger to be on the same level as himself. Magneto asks what his mutant power is, and the stranger reveals that he is not, in fact, a mutant. Boy, I mean, Magneto's mutant radar really sucks, doesn't it? I mean, he thought Thor was a mutant? Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch? Now, the stranger? Uh, The stranger then grows to an immense size. He grabs Magneto and the Toad and then, I don't know, blows his nose on him? I I don't know, whatever the case, Magneto and Toad are now covered in a thin, membranous film that uh, the stranger refers to as anti-magnetic. Okay, so neither baddie can move. Meanwhile, back at the mansion, uh, Professor X examines the Mastermind statue, and uh, Mastermind is still alive, but altered irreversibly. Uh, Cyclops wonders if this stranger could possibly be as dangerous as Magneto, and Xavier tells him that he makes Magneto look like a child. And so, minutes later, we're in the X-Copter. Xavier is drawn to the stranger via mental emanations, which I guess that's as good as an explanation as we need, right? Anyway, they find Magneto and Toad all wrapped in that gunk. Xavier waits for Warren to touch Magneto before telling them not to touch Magneto. What a dick. Um, Now, Warren is shocked, silly, by some strange force shooting out of this membrane. Then, the stranger appears. He informs the good guys that the membranous cocoons that he's trapped Magneto and Toad in are for their own good. You see, they're going to protect them for the journey they're about to embark on. Xavier posits that this journey will take them off Earth, to which the stranger says, Duh. Well, no, he actually just repeats that he is a stranger. Um, His answer to everything for this issue is, I am a stranger. It's like, hey, uh, stranger, what time is it? I am a stranger. You want chocolate or vanilla? I am a stranger. Yeah, change for a dollar? I am a stranger. It's awful. Anyway, the stranger then beams away with Magneto and Toad, vowing never, ever to return. The X-Men kind of just stand there gobsmacked for a minute before, for whatever reason, the police rush in on the scene. Xavier freaks out because he cannot be seen with these mutants. And so Beast pulls a distraction to draw the officer's attention away from the creepy bald man in a wheelchair being loaded onto a helicopter. The X-Men then head home, all the way to Charles Xavier's house, which, I mean, now seems kind of silly, doesn't it? I mean, Xavier doesn't want anyone to know he's with the X-Men but the X-Men's helicopter keeps taking off and landing at his house. Uh, Oh, well, Silver Age, right? Um, Now we wrap up with Xavier taking some names out of his Cerebro button panel. Those names are Mastermind, Magneto, and Toad. The Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and Blob remain, and uh, hey, look at that, Eunice has been added. Hey. Now as we close, Cerebro starts pinging like crazy. Xavier suggests that, You'll never believe it, but uh, the X-Men might be just about to face their deadliest danger yet. You know, just like every other issue of this book. And that's where we leave it. Uh, Next issue is the uh, mutant threat of Juggernaut? I I mean, I I mean, he's not. Why is Cerebro pinging? Come on, why is Cerebro pinging? Anyway, we will get to that in a couple of episodes time, because next... We're going to be taking a look at Avengers number 16 to see where Wanda and Pietro will be getting off to. Now, let's say we hop into our letters page here. This is some of the some of the funnest parts of the Essentials episodes here, taking a look at these, you know, of-the-day letters pages here. Now, Stan opens by gleefully informing us that he finally deep-sixed Magneto, just like we've all been asking him to. 
he's almost positive that this will trigger a whole bunch of letters demanding that he be brought back right away, because, uh, you know, fans be fickle, yo. And uh, speaking of which, let's look at our first letter. This is George in Michigan. And he'd like to take Magneto's side in the should-he-stay-or-should-he-go debate. Now, the way he looks at it, there are 300,000 readers of the X-Men, and only 1% of them dislike Magneto. We're, we're going to need you to show your work there, Georgie. I, I don't know where you get these numbers from. Well, we do have an idea of where he might have gotten some of these numbers from. You see, he took a vote where he works. Yes. <laughs> he took a vote where he works. Uh, where 93 out of 93 people he works with voted to keep Magneto. Could you imagine this goofball coming up to you in a professional setting in 1965... Asking what you thought about Magneto. I mean, would you... would <laughs> You know, this is very, very early in the organized fandom of comics, right? This is when comics were mostly for kids, and, and they made no bones about that. It's not like today where we say they're for all ages when they're really just catering to, uh, you know, people in their 30s, 40s, and, and so on. So 1965. You're you're in a you're in a professional environment here. You're uh, you're answering phones or you're you're writing up schematics for something. You're you're taking reports, and some dude comes up to you and says, "Hey, uh, there's this book called the X Men, and uh, they've got this character named Magneto. And uh, hey, here here he is. Look at him. See, he's got a he's got a helmet, and uh, he's got a furrowed brow and and horns on his helmet. And you think he should stick around or no? I mean, I don't know. Everybody says to keep him. So uh, I, I think they were probably just being polite and trying to get uh, George to go away. Now, George, he's also worried that this might mean we'll never see the Maximoffs again. To which Stan says, hey, wait and see. For, like, a week or two. Because Avengers number 16 is going to be here, like, right away. It might even be on the shelves now, for all I know. So that is Georgie's letter. Next up, Scott in Pennsylvania. Now, he's been a Marvel fan for approximately three years. Like, isn't three years a little too short a period of time to toss an approximately in there? Like, I mean, I've liked comic books for approximately nine days now, give or take. I mean, come on. Uh, He's in graduate school at Lehigh University, where he also teaches calculus. And he founded the Marvel Mathematicians Comic Club. Hmm, I'm sure he could have thrown a Mary in there, right? Uh, he took a poll, speaking of polls here, where wherein his clubsters voted the Hulk as the best Marvel character. Doctor Strange and the X-Men came in second and third. Now, Stan, pleased to meet this academic, suggests that Scott try to get a comicsology class started up at Lehigh. Wow, digital comics back in 1965? No, well, different comicsology. Uh, Barry in Massachusetts, he claims to read X-Men every time he gets a haircut. Uh, and he agrees with an earlier letter hack, Don, that Wanda and Pietro should not join the X-Men because the team is just fine as it is. Now, as for deputy duties, Barry would like to see the X-Men rotate the position like the Avengers do their chair. His favorites are Cyclops and Kid Cool. He doesn't care much for Angel. He'd like to see Xavier get a new power. Really? Uh, and he thinks that Beast and Marvel Girl are just fine. Barry closes out by saying he will join the Merry Marvel Marching Society. Now, if we were to give out awards for, like, the most bat-spit-crazy letter that we're going to get, it would go to Vincent in Michigan. Because dude is going to lay down the law for heroes and villains, so uh, listen up, chumps. 
Uh, one, good and evil are equally opposing forces. Two, each hero and villain has a given amount of power and value, and this must never vary. Three, heroes and villains must only do battle with foes having equivalent power. Four, heroes and villains having each other's own value must not be featured more than a set number of times a year. What the hell is he talking about? I mean, is this a problem that we actually have here? I don't know what he's getting on about. Five, no, no I'm done. Uh, this dude's whacked. Um, these are the scrawlings of a madman. And uh, the reply here is, is fantastic. Stan... He doesn't even pretend to have the foggiest idea what Vincent is going on about here. He mocks Vinny's missive, claiming that, uh, well, they received it, but they still can't interpret it. They published it anyway, which is great, but, uh, oh man, I shared this, uh, this letter on social media, uh, not too long ago. It's just like, what in the hell is this dude trying to say? And, and why? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, next up, Rick in Pennsylvania. He loved X-Men number 9, but he questions the logic of Professor X being whisked away by a dust devil. Really? That's where the story loses you? Okay. Uh, Rick's also joined the MMMS. Martin in Florida. He says the X-Men have come a long way in the year they've been around. He likes how the members have their own personalities now. He likes Beast being intellectual, Cyclops being the responsible one, he liked Iceman better as a snowman and wants to know why he lost his booties. Well, he, you know, he's, he's got them back now. He likes Marvel Girl, but says that she changes her headgear a bit too much. Once, dude, she changed it one time. One time. This is like people complaining that Jean dies all the time. I mean, she, she died once. Well, before Krakoa, of course. Uh, Angel, he says, hasn't changed at all. Uh, he's still just the dude with the wings. He would like to see Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch join up citing that it would make the X-Men the first team mag with two females on it. Well, that's a very interesting point, isn't it? Uh, next up, Pat in North Carolina. Likes Scott as the leader, likes the X-Men in matching costumes, isn't interested in a romance between Jean and Scott, yet our, uh, our letter hack you know, says this as a g-g-g-g-girl, so she knows a thing or two about romance. This is, these are her words, not mine. Uh, Stan replies by calling her honey and tells her that they'll do their best. <laughs> oh, the 60s. Uh, Kenneth in Virginia. He thinks Pietro and Wanda would spoil the X-Men's dynamic if they joined up. He thinks superhero teams should cap out at five members. He cites a recent issue of Fantastic Four co-starring the Avengers, wherein, in his words, heroes were tripping over each other. Huh, I wonder if Kenneth is still reading the books nowadays and what he thinks about heroes tripping over one another. Uh, we close out with Stan promising a new artist on X-Men number 12. It's going to be Alex Toth under Kirby's layouts, and I tell you what, it's a welcome change, especially after this ugly issue. Stan also promises that we're going to be learning more about Professor X. And indeed we will. The story is called The Origin of Professor X, after all. Into the uh, proto-bullpen bulletin section, the special notes section, Stan says he gets a lot of letters from readers citing that the Marvel mags sell out too fast at the newsstand. And Stan advises that these would-be readers uh, repeatedly tell their retailers to make mine Marvel until they order more copies or, I don't know, call the police and have them hauled away. Speaking of Marvel comics, let's get into the mighty, mighty Marvel checklist. 
More books on sale this month include Fantastic Four number 39. This is A Blind Man Shall Lead Them, where Daredevil guest stars as the FF are powerless and pitted against Doctor Doom. Amazing Spider-Man number 25 features Pete captured by J. Jonah Jameson. Avengers number 16, The Old Order Changeth, which uh, we will be covering in depth next episode. Thor number 116 features The Trial of the Gods. Strange Tales number 155, I'm going to assume this is a typo, or we went into the future because Strange Tales should only be up to like issue 132 at this point. Uh, now, Stan hasn't written the Torch and Things segment yet, but he promises it'll be a doozy in, in Stanley style. Uh, Doctor Strange is also featured in a nameless land in a timeless time. Tales of Suspense number 66. Don Heck draws a Tuma, so be excited. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, also, Captain America has a banger of a cliffhanger. In Tales to Astonish number 68, Kirby returns to the Hulk and Giant Man fights someone. Finally, in Sergeant Fury number 18, we got some tragedy for the Howlers. So, what did we think about this issue? Wasn't the worst thing in the world, right? Uh, It was okay. Uh, Just kind of ugly. It was pretty interesting that how receptive uh, Stan seems to be toward the, uh, the letter hacks here. Everybody's complaining, or at least an overwhelming amount, at least from what we've seen, are complaining that uh, we're getting a little too much Magneto, right? We're not privy to sales figures. I don't even know if they'd have sales figures um, for the more recent issues to this point. So it seems like Stan is trying to uh, trying to appease those who uh, are writing in, the, uh, the most vocal of the fans here, which is kind of weird since, you know, Stan is kind of famous for uh, saying, you know, don't give the fans what they think they want. And indeed, I mean, the very first letter we get here is saying, keep Magneto. So uh, we uh, we be a fickle bunch, aren't we? I thought the way of taking Magneto off the board was pretty interesting because, I mean, the Marvel Universe was very young at this point, right? We don't know if he's coming back. <laughs> if we're in 1965 and we're following along here, we don't have, you know, the half-century worth of hindsight to know what Magneto will become. So for all we know... This very well could be it for uh, for old Buckethead. I do like how neat and tidy this all wrapped up here. Uh, the Stranger is very much like a Deus Ex Machina type character who really we don't know much about him other than he's supremely powerful and can do whatever he wants to do because he can do it. <laughs> I guess. Uh, and what better way to take the entire Brotherhood out, right? Magneto and Toad are whisked away to wherever the hell. Mastermind is a statue in the uh, Xavier Mansion, and Pietro and Wanda have put their days of adventuring behind them. You know, until the very next episode. But, uh, hey, you know, it took them off the board here. They turned down uh, the invite to join the X-Men, which I feel like is another reaction to the letter hacks here, because we did have folks who wanted them to join, right? But we also had folks who didn't want them to join, but they didn't want them to be bad guys either. So I think this might be a way to appease as many people as possible. You take Pietro and Wanda out of the Brotherhood, you turn them good, but you don't just force them into the X-Men. It's another way to show that the Marvel Universe is one cohesive unit, right? You have uh, characters from the X-Universe sliding over into the Avengers book. It's, uh, I mean, I don't think we need a spoiler alert there that <laughs> Wanda and Pietro will join the Avengers. But I thought this was a nice way to kind of draw a line under the... Uh, I guess maybe we can call this the first arc 
of the X-Men here. We're, we're taking the big bad off the table. We're uh, moving on to new and different things here. Uh, when we get back to the X-Men title in a couple of episodes, we're going to be meeting the Juggernaut. A few episodes after that, we're going to be meeting the Sentinels. We're really building a non-Magneto X lore here. We're, we're filling out the rogues gallery. I mean, we're also going to meet, like, the Plant Man and the Locust and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of weirdos that uh, we're not going to see a whole lot of. But uh, we've also got the Mimic and Banshee, and it's, it's going to be a good time. We're going to be uh, seeing some seminal stories, and uh, it's nice to have... Magneto and the Brotherhood just kind of put off to the side for a little bit. Give us a little bit of breathing room. Give some of the other bad guys the opportunity to uh, to shine and to establish themselves without uh, the constant race to recruit, right, from Professor X and Magneto trying to get the new mutant threat to join their side rather than the other. What else we got here? Um, I've mentioned it throughout the, uh, the episode here, but the art here was not great. Uh, not a great showing for Kirby. Uh, the coloring was weird. Just not a pleasant book to look at. Uh, totally a seminal story here, an important one in X-Men history, but uh, eh, not a pretty one. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about the issue. Uh, before we get out of here, let's take a look into the mailbag where we're going to hear from our good friend Damien. And he's talking about X-Men number one. Now, Damien says, My plan was to skip over Essential X-Lapse, just as I do with the Sunday specials, in hope of one day getting close to catching up with you. Every time I open Podbean, I'm told I have 30-odd podcasts outstanding, and the vast majority are Chris-related, and I just feel so guilty for falling behind. But the next regular X-Lapse available on Unlimited is another Excalibur, and I really wasn't in the mood for that, so I had to decide whether to time travel to the Hellfire Gala or to 1963. Clearly, I chose to go with X-Men number one. And <laughs> it's so funny you say that. And first, uh, no worries on being behind here. I know I, I crank out probably way too much uh, content here. That might be slowing down once we break the uh, the one year of Daily Show's uh, milestone in just about a month. Uh, I think it was the end of August was the uh, last time the channel took a day off from putting out a show uh, every day. So maybe once that, is, that milestone's done, I'll, I'll slow down a little bit. But we'll... Uh, I guess we'll play that by ear and see. But it's funny you mention having to choose between Excalibur and uh, 1963 because I had a similar quandary not too long ago. I've mentioned before that I'm usually ahead a couple of days on, on scripting. And uh, I got to X-Corp Day, another Teeny Howard book. And I just couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't do it. It was, was X-Corp number two for the Hellfire Gala. And I had the book on the nightstand, but I also had the old iPad on there, and I was like, oh, boy, what do I do? Do I do X-Corp, or do I just, you know, do I read about the Juggernaut Storm in the Mansion? And, uh, well, I went with the Juggernaut Storm in the Mansion. It's just, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. That said, I'm very, very happy to hear you uh, hear your thoughts on these uh, Silver Age stories here. I was hoping that you would check them out, and uh, we'd get some of your takes. Uh, Damien continues. Your history with the early X-Men is very different from my own. My first superhero comic was a Marvel UK comic called Thor and the X-Men, which reprinted the late 1960s Roy Thomas Warner Roth stories. The era they were covering included the origin backup, so I was familiar with them. I then got into US comics in 1986 via X-Factor, which featured those same characters, but later on in their careers. I didn't read X-Men number one until years later when I got a reprint edition of number one, which was released in 1991 to coincide with the Claremont Jim Lee X-Men number one. 
By the time I read it, I was steeped in X-Men continuity, so my main reaction was that there was so much missing from the story. No actual origin in that first issue. And you know I never looked at it that way. I'm trying to think of all of the uh, the Silver Age Marvel stuff here that I can remember off the top of my head. I mean, Fantastic Four number one did show them getting bombarded by uh, cosmic rays. Uh, the first appearance of the Hulk did show him turning into the Hulk. Same with Iron Man, same with Spider-Man. They all had origins in their first issues here, but uh, not the X-Men. They were just introduced as sort of just these interchangeable characters with powers that were in uh, similar costumes here. It's a very different take if you look at it that way. And I honestly, to this point, had never actually looked at it that way. So, wow. Damien continues. My other main takeaway was just how garish the art looked. It was reprinted on clean white paper, and they clearly didn't adjust, and didn't adjust the colors to look more like they would have looked on newsprint. For this reread, I went to Unlimited, and the colors had definitely been adjusted. They're still much brighter than they would have looked on newsprint, but far less garish than the 1991 reprint. Within the episode, you ask who could have colored this story. My understanding, as a fake-ass comics historian, is that all Marvel books from 1961 to 1969 are usually credited to Millie the model artist Stan Goldberg, who was the in-house colorist during this period. I've seen exceptions noted, though. Apparently, uh, Jim Steranko tended to color his own art, and I've read interviews where various writers and editors have mentioned having to color a few pages here and there when deadlines were short. We also know that Marie Severin was in the bullpen throughout the 60s. I've seen the suggestion that she colored more comics pages than anyone else in the history of comics. She famously colored the entire output of EC Comics and then worked at Marvel for decades. She would often do a page or two in a comic uncredited, and some people argue that this makes her the most prolific. And yes, you've discovered my, uh, my quandary and my conflict here. I did a whole bunch of research on who could have colored these things, and... From sources that I would usually trust, I'm, I get conflicting information here. I've, I've seen Marie Severin. I've seen uh, Stan Goldberg. I've seen Ditko and Kirby. It, it's weird. Um, and if you're, you're still listening to this point, we still don't have accredited colorist on these books. So it's uh, it's very bizarre. And I, and I feel weird attributing it to someone who might not be the one. Uh, I, I'm just very, very weird about that kind of thing here. So I guess maybe I could just saying. Colored by the bullpen, or something like that. An all-inclusive sort of a thing. Uh, Damien continues. Talking of being a fake-ass comics historian, I feel this book really shows some of the push and pull of the Kirby and Lee relationship. At times, the art and script are are going in a slightly different direction. Clearly, Kirby was drawing Xavier as an older man, but Lee complicates it with his reference to his parents working on the bomb. Now, this would make Xavier 20 at the oldest, which really doesn't fit. Xavier's mood swings suggest that this book wasn't dialogued in one session. Maybe he was writing them piecemeal as Kirby delivered the pages, and he didn't really have the characters set just yet. I definitely think you're onto something there, uh, and that's... When I first found out about the, uh, the Marvel method of writing comics, it, I couldn't wrap my head around it because it just felt... Uh, I don't know, it felt counterproductive to me. I, I know that it uh, it's all about speed and expediency and stuff like that, but... I don't know, it made them feel, for lack of a better term, like less pure to me. Like, I, I, I felt like it didn't have a, like a singular sort of voice, right? Just the idea that Stan puts together a, like a very basic overview and then just gives this overview to an artist who cranks out 20 pages that may or may not fall in line with what he wanted to have happen. 
I don't know. <laughs> I was always like just bamboozled by the entire creative endeavor there. I, I didn't understand it. And uh, back when I was, you know, a younger man or a child, really, um, and thought about, hey, maybe one day I'll write comics. I would always run into the Marvel method and be like, how would I even make that work? <laughs> I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'm creative enough. I don't know that I'm smart enough. I, I don't know. I mean, props to these guys to for making it making it work as uh, as cleanly as they did. Damien continues. It also seems to me that Kirby definitely intended Cyclops to be the leader and the most effective character, while Lee added in a rivalry with Angel. All the decisive actions in the battle are taken by Cyclops. Similarly, Jean is given more agency in the art than in the script, where she has a bad case of the girl, which was one of the weakest elements of Lee's writing. They never really had any individual characteristics, and you're totally spot on there. It's Their only characteristic was that they were... The girl. And um, in future episodes of The Essentials here, Jean will be referred to simply as the girl. Not from me, but from like the professor and from Scott. <laughs> they, just, they just call her girl. I can't remember where I read this, but uh, someone, uh, perhaps a fellow fake ass comics historian, was doing like maybe not so much a study, but an observation on how uh, women were treated in the Silver Age between Marvel and DC. How characters like you know, Lois Lane and uh, Iris West were reporters, and uh, Jean Loring was a lawyer over in DC, but you come over to the Marvel side, and all the characters are uh, secretaries and uh, assistants, and they're all, like, madly in love with whoever they work for. Which, I don't know if that's telling <laughs> about Stan Lee, but... Uh, there's definitely a difference between the way Marvel and DC presented uh, the girls back in the uh, Silver Age. Damien continues, It's also interesting to note that this is a book about teenagers produced by two men in their 40s, and therefore falls into some of the traps of these stories. The main teenage characteristics that come to the fore are being sex-mad and wearing hideous clothes. As you go through it, they'll be interesting to see if these get better when Roy Thomas and Gary Friedrich, who were in their 20s at the time, write the book. And yeah, totally. I'm, I'm sure that's not something that crossed my mind the first time I read this back in the long ago, but uh, reading it now with, a, with, with like a fake-ass eye toward analysis, it's quite apparent that Stan and Jack are uh, a generation removed from these uh, characters that they're trying to portray here. And it reminds me of uh, the first time I you know, ran headlong into the cringe factor of uh, a writer who was... Uh, generationally uh, divided from the characters they were writing. And I think the first time I was cognizant of that was in a Chris Claremont story when he returned to the X-Books and was, like, using, like, early 90s slang. <laughs> and it was, like, the year 2000 at this point, which, I mean, imagine, like, somebody trying to tell, like, an Austin Powers reference right now and, and using that topically. It's it just... It's out of date, right? I also remember uh, Claremont doing Sovereign 7. I, I covered a, an issue of that on the blog ages ago, and it featured uh, Superman and Lois Lane, and Lois was with the main character of Sovereign 7. I don't remember their name, but, uh, like, was saying, like, strike a pose, girl, and it's like, dude, <laughs> come on, this is, like, physical cringe. So, yeah, it's a little awkward at times here, isn't it? And it's gonna get more so. Uh, Damien continues. I love the Silver Age silliness of Magneto signing his metallic dust message. 
You just know in a modern reinterpretation of that scene, it would be his logo, which he would then sell merch of. I love the idea of the U.S. military just letting a group of teenagers have a go at defending their base. Doesn't feel very authentic today. It's also weird to see the X-Men embraced as heroes by the establishment. There's no anti-mutant feeling at all in this story. It's just mutant supremacy versus coexistence. We're not seeing any hatred or fear just yet. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of silliness in this issue, right? Uh, Like Magneto just walking in. It's just so, so bizarre. But uh, as for the fear and or hate, um, yeah, it's clear that uh, that wasn't part of the story just yet. And when it finally does become part of the story, it is very, very awkwardly done, right? Um, It's just like a group of people decide, hey, we don't trust mutants anymore. And uh, they run with it. (laughs) It's about the size of it. Uh, Damien continues. Overall, rereading this was a great source of joy, despite the iffy sexual politics. It was just fun. I definitely enjoyed it far more than I did in 1991. Clearly, 47-year-old Damien has a different taste to 17-year-old Damien. I don't own the essentials for this era, so I will be reading these issues for the first time beyond issue number one. I'm looking forward to it, even though I know there's some ropey stuff coming up. And boy, is there. I, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on issue three when uh, Professor X, uh, well, he uh, he admits his, his lust for <laughs> someone far younger than him. It's very iffy on the uh, sexual politics side here. Uh, Jean, the girl, I mean, and that will continue. Uh, the, uh, the weird fascination with Jean from the guys, except for Bobby, who just sees her as a, as a girl and doesn't really care much about her. But the others are going to be... Uh, they're going to be really uh, courting. <laughs> and it's uh, it's almost horrifying to consider that she's living in this mansion with, uh, you know, four hormonal boys and a creepy professor who harbors a secret lust for her. It's uh, not ideal. And uh, I think I mentioned it when Jean's parents showed up a few issues later. It's just like, they're, they're cool with this? <laughs> it just seems very, very bizarre. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Damien. I'm so happy that you're listening to The Essentials here. Uh, I was hoping to hear your thoughts here. And and knowing that uh, these subsequent issues are going to be your first time checking them out, I definitely can't wait to hear your thoughts on those as well. So thank you so much. Next up, my good pal and uh, cohort in Questerdays and Moratory Mondays, Chris Bailey, talking about Jack Kirby. He says, There's some interesting comments on issue 15 about the Kirby art. It's surprising that folks were turning on on the Kirby style this early on. I have a love-hate relationship with different periods of Kirby's work. Early Marvel is some of his foundational work. Kirby's in creation mode. He's designing the look, tech, and vibe of a universe at this point. Many things we've not seen before are being created by Kirby before our very eyes. DC Kirby was his best stuff. New God's Era was his magnum opus. Back to Marvel and uh, Eternals was very good, basically because it was the New Gods. Then Jack falls apart. His quality on Black Panther and Cap is now dated and he's losing grip. Kirby then goes independent and finds his best self on Captain Victory, and we get a small glimpse of that old Jack magic. Back to DC with superpowers, and by this time, Jack's stuff is totally obsolete. Then into the 90s and post-mortem, we get some of his top stuff, Secret City, and now we're done. All things considered, early X-Men Jack was pretty great, and is in world-building mode, so I guess, for me, the critics in these letters pages can go fly a kite. And yeah, that's a a reference to uh, some of the uh, letter hacks of the day saying, like, Kirby is not an artist, which is odd. Um, Especially with how we look at Kirby nowadays, as, 
you know, part of the Mount Rushmore, right? He's foundational. He is responsible for so much of what, you know, billion-dollar movies are uh, revolving around nowadays. It's uh, so much of that is is Kirby. Uh, most of it is Kirby in look and style, right? Very, very strange that back in, you know, 1963, 64, and 65, we got writers of letters sending in missives saying, like, uh, you know, for the discerning fan, Kirby is not an artist. And while, you know, just like uh, just like Chris says here, I'm also hot and cold on uh, Kirby here. I'll never profess that he's my favorite, and then I'll also, also never profess that he's my least favorite. I, I can appreciate... How important he is uh, And I can appreciate his art for what it is But I definitely agree It's uh, it's weird that these letter hacks are, are, are dismissing the Kirby style already So thank you so much for writing in About your thoughts on uh, Old King Kirby Now finally we have a letter from our friend Billy here Talking about episodes 14 and 15 He says, hey Chris Truthfully I'm not a huge fan of the Savage Land either the issue sounds decent, though, and one that I wouldn't mind reading. As far as Strange Tales is concerned, however, I've heard nothing but ugh when anyone has talked about the Human Torch era. I think I'll let that one slip through the cracks and let you talk about it. Take care, and I look forward to more episodes and talking soon. Well, thank you so much, Billy. And yeah, the Strange Tales stuff is a little a little iffy, right? Um, I think... For the most part, I'm enjoying it most of all because it's my first time ever reading it. I've never done a project like this before, so any rereads I've done of the old issues have just been X-Books. I haven't really broadened the horizons. I, I wouldn't have read a Thor story. I wouldn't have read the Human Torch and Thing versus Scarlet Witch and uh, Quicksilver story. I would have just skipped it. So I think as a novelty, and me seeing these for the first time may have made my impression of them a little bit uh, a little bit kinder. <laughs> Then history might remember it But thank you so much for writing in I'm so happy that you're enjoying the essential run And uh, it really means a lot that you're listening But that is going to do it for today If anybody out there is enjoying this Or maybe not enjoying this Hey, feel free to write in and let me know You can find me several different places uh, On Twitter, I'm Ace Comics Instagram, 90s X-Men And and the Instagram might be going away soon I I, I have no idea what I'm doing there And uh, nobody seems to want me there so uh, we will probably be deep six in that one before long. Uh, you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Laps voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisoninfiniteearth.com. You can join us on Facebook. The group is 90s X-Men over there. And uh, finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, including the full archives of all the X-Lab stuff, you could head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that is available anywhere the internet aggregates noise for your ears. But that's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.